Our guests are here and fortunately still alive. Welcome back to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I still like scary movies. I hope everyone out there had an awesome new year. I hope you enjoyed waving farewell to 2022 as much as I did. It was one of the worst years of my life. But it wasn't all bad. I mean, my health was garbage, but I didn't die, so I consider that a win. And it was a pretty good year for horror overall. We got X. Deadstream, which was amazing, The Black Phone, Mad God, we got a new Scream movie, Torn Hearts, you know, Katie Seagal, starring as a villain in a horror movie, which is something that I have been clamoring for since I was a kid, Studio 666, which was still one of the highlights of 2022 for me. Um, And although I wasn't able to be here very much, we did manage to have some fun here on the podcast. I went through the entire Evil Dead franchise with Jeff of Nerd Trek. That was a lot of fun. Looked back at the craft with Christy from that horror witch. And I actually basically got to interview Chuck Serino for his score from Chopping Mall, which is one of the single most exciting things that's ever happened to me. So it definitely could have been worse. I missed the show so much, though, and I just wasn't able to be here. So I am determined to make up for lost time this year. Starting today, Final Girl Friday will be a bi-monthly thing on a schedule. Every other Friday, I'll be here with more retrospective reviews and half dives into some of our favorite movies. Uh, points of interest in the realm of horror, and I'll be dragging a fellow member of the horror family into every episode, I hope, to talk about why we love these movies so damn much. And on this subject, I would also like to welcome to the Final Girl Friday team, which is such a weird and fun thing to say, the very talented Jonathan Bradley, who will be editing the show. So say hello to Jonathan in the proverbial cutting room. Hey, Jonathan. (laughs) Welcome to God's country. Thank you so much for lending your enthusiasm and your expertise and hopefully freeing up just a little bit more time for me so I can focus on getting content out more regularly. As you guys know, I've been struggling with this for years and I'm tired of it. In addition to bringing on an editor and uh, sort of reformatting the show, I've also been hosting live Instagram chats. It's an idea I've been kicking around for a while, you know, with TikTok suppressing a lot of my videos for whatever reason. I got a little burned out on the short form video thing uh, for a little while, but then uh, just a few weeks ago, I, I sat in on a live chat hosted by Eddie's Video uh, featuring my friend Anthony Brown Lee about Silent Night, Deadly Night, and I had such a great time just hanging out in there listening to them talk about the movie, and I thought, you know, why not do this on Instagram? Why not give this a try? So I've done, we've done a couple of them so far. And I figured just moving forward a couple of times a week in the interim between episodes, I would like to hop on Instagram, maybe drag a couple of people on there with me and, and talk about movies that we love, particularly movies that probably won't make it into Final Girl Friday. Just a cacophony of movies is my hope. I know I've said things like this in the past, but with last year being such a monumental shit show. I'm just, I'm feeling highly motivated to push forward. So I'm really excited for 2023. In honor of the new year, I thought I'd kick things off with another one of my personal Desert Island all-time favorite and, of course, Canadian slasher films, Terror Train from 1980. Now, I promised these dorks I was going to come up with something truly special. Yeah, really special. Put a kid in the hospital. Oh, I'm sorry, I ruined your punchline. 
There aren't very many horror movies set on or around New Year's Eve, and Terror Train is often overlooked as one of them, I suspect, because for several reasons it feels much more fitting for Halloween. But this is my go-to end-of-the-year movie. It doesn't feel right ringing in the new year without it. Before we can dive into it though, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. A couple of weeks ago was the 97th anniversary of F.W. Murnau's last German film before moving to Hollywood, Faust. Based on a German legend, Faust tells the story of the demon Mephisto, who makes a bet with an archangel that he can corrupt a righteous man, thus destroying all the good in him, and his reward will be full control over the world. <laughs> So he's not asking for much. Mephisto curses a small village with a deadly plague, then strikes a series of deals with the town's alchemist, Faust, in exchange for its cure, among other things. It's an incredible film. It's deeply moving, beautifully made. Murnau was literally given an unlimited budget to make Faust, and it shows. And its influence can be found in everything from Hellraiser to the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I highly recommend it if you've not seen it yet. It just blows my mind that the movie is over 100 years old. Secondly, Shawnee Smith may be coming back to the Saw franchise, which is a much more exciting prospect for me than I would have thought. I'm gonna do that thing where I get all worked up over something the whole world has already been into for decades, so <clears throat> brace yourself. I recently sat down and watched all but one of the Saw films, the one exception being Spiral. I still haven't gotten to that yet. And prior to this, I had only seen the first three, I want to say. I really enjoyed the first Saw from 2004, but at the risk of sounding like an insufferable hipster, the hype around the franchise quickly put me off and kept me from powering through the rest of it. And I gotta say, man, I was missing out. The Saw franchise is surprisingly fun. It's true that after a while, it basically becomes a parody of itself with increasingly unbelievable traps and contrived plot lines. But Tobin Bell as John Kramer is nothing short of a powerhouse. Charlie Clauser's music is fantastic. It never fails to impress. Um, and no matter how many lackluster choices the writers made in the later films, I, I could not stop watching. So yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm kind of looking forward to Saw 10, and I would be thrilled if Smith returned for it. I'm sorry. I know it's hard to concentrate when you're surrounded by so many things you could kill me with. For a little recommended reading, over on Horror Geek Life, Chase Harrison poses the question, if Ari Aster's Hereditary was made in the 80s, who would be cast? This was a stupidly entertaining question. I was thinking about it all day yesterday. And I'm in agreement with most of Harrison's suggestions, such as River Phoenix and Drew Barrymore as the grandchildren and Donald Sutherland as Stephen. Mostly I'm just comforted in the knowledge that I'm not the only one constantly recasting movies with actors who have long outgrown the roles I wish they could play. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, I recently discovered another new podcast, but this time it's different because I'm pretty sure it's the best podcast ever made. To introduce ourselves, my name is Dan. I'm a Jeffrey Combs fan. I'm Jackie. I'm also a Jeffrey Combs fan. It doesn't rhyme, though. Uh, <laughs> I'm Catherine. I'm also a Jeffrey Combs fan. Uh, and my name is Matt. I am a Jeffrey Combs fanatic. I have found my people. It's called Combs Crew. It's hosted by four friends who have exquisite taste in actors, and in it, they watch, review, and discuss all the films and major television roles of one Mr. Jeffrey Combs. They opened with Dr. Mordred. They've covered everything from Abominable to Would You Rather, and uh, they even talked about the episode of Beauty and the Beast he was in in 87, which made me so happy. 
I've never binged a podcast harder in my life. That's all I'm saying. All right, I think that's all I've got for today. So without further ado, it's time to dive into the movie. We'll take a look at Terror Train's story, production, and reception. And then my friend and fellow slasher Donovan will join us to talk about why this movie means so much to him. And we'll wrap up with a new worst case scenario. I'm bringing it back and it's, it's here to stay. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Terror Train from 1980, proceed with caution. There will be many spoilers ahead. Alright, let's talk about Terror Train. Terror Train was directed by Roger Spottiswood, based on a story by producers Don Carmody and Daniel Grodnick, with a screenplay by Ty Drake and Judith Rasko. It was 21st Century Fox's first slasher film, and it was released in October of 1980. Though I'm sure it probably goes without saying at this point, one of the reasons I love Terror Train so much is that it's a Canadian holiday-themed slasher that follows very closely that revenge slasher formula. I mean, in fact, it was one of the founders of that very specific formula within the slasher subgenre. And formulaic Canadian slashers from this era set on major holidays are like my kryptonite. I, I am a sucker for each and every one of them. Terror Train starts at a frat party, uh, more specifically a frat bonfire celebrating New Year's Eve. A few frat guys are kind of hazing a group of pledges. Is hazing the correct term there? I know I know absolutely nothing about frat culture. <laughs> Basically, they're peer pressuring the pledges to get laid for New Year's Eve. One such pledge is Kenny, played by Derek McKinnon. The guys are playing a prank on Kenny, encouraging him to go for it with the beautiful Elena Maxwell, our final girl, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, of course. They station Elena up in one of the bedrooms at the frat house, have her hide behind the bed and call out to Kenny, who, as soon as he walks in the room, starts taking his clothes off. <laughs> Neither Elena nor Kenny are aware that lying in the bed waiting for him is a female cadaver. And this isn't just your average med school cadaver either. I mean, she is grotesque. Her arms have been severed and they're just sort of propped up at her sides. It looks like someone was in the middle of performing an autopsy on her and her guts are spilling out. When Kenny climbs into the bed half naked and discovers this cadaver, it sends him into an immediate spiral, both figuratively and literally. He stands up and starts kind of twirling himself up in the sheer curtains surrounding the bed. Elena also freaks out. While she was complicit in the prank, she didn't realize the guys were going to take it quite this far. Kenny is institutionalized and we cut to three years later. This same group of students are celebrating what might be their last New Year's Eve as pre-med students with this big party on a moving train. It's also a costume party, which is one of my personal favorite things about Terror Train. Everybody is in costume. You have everything from, you know, sexy nurses to a lizard man, Groucho Marx, a really creepy monk. There are a live band and a magician for entertainment. And there's a small staff on board the train, including the conductor, Carney, played by the legendary Ben Johnson of the town that dreaded sundown. Before the train even leaves the station, one of the students, Ed, who was also a freshman with Kenny back in the day, is lagging behind his classmates and murdered by an unseen hand. The killer steals his Groucho Marx costume, rolls him onto the train tracks, and climbs aboard just as the train is taking off. Inevitably, everyone who was involved in one way or another with the prank on Kenny is hunted and 
been killed. The killer then dons whatever costume they were wearing and moves on to the next one. It all culminates with a fucking epic chase scene and final showdown between Elena and the killer, who of course turns out to be Kenny. And at the end of that showdown, history repeats itself with Kenny having a second kind of mental breakdown and Carney bursts in at the last minute to finish him off. What I personally love most about Terror Train, and the list of things I love about this movie is pretty long. It's it's one of my all-time favorites. But what I think I love most about it, it hits all the right beats that we've come to expect of the subgenre, which is largely due to the fact that it was directly inspired by Halloween. When Carmody first had the idea for Terror Train, he essentially just said, I want to take Halloween and I want to put it on a train. Daniel Grodnick reached out to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, requested their blessing, which they gave, and they set out to retell Halloween in a new setting with a few fun twists. And the similarities between Halloween and Terror Train are undeniable. So it's very easy to just write this off as another Halloween ripoff from the early 80s. If you want to look more closely at the Terror Train story, you can find some really interesting subtext. How much of that subtext was put there deliberately by the writers, I can't say. But... When you dig a little deeper into Terror Train, you find this undercurrent of commentary on the power and influence of illusion in its many forms. Everything from the intrigue of stage magic to the transformative nature of drag. So much of this movie is looking you directly in the eyes and saying, nothing is what it seems. Not only has it risen to the top of the deck, but now it has become Jack of Spades. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, sir. <laughs> Just yay. Got a clever one. When you add to this some of the more creative methods employed during production, like manually rocking the train back and forth to simulate motion, burning church incense and charcoal to envelop the train in smoke, lighting the actors' faces with pen torches, it's just this seems at a distance like a sleazy slasher movie, but I feel like it worked its ass off to create some true movie magic. It's not just the undercurrent either. I mean, they cast David Copperfield, the most successful magician in the world, uh, to play the magician, the live entertainment on board the train. And of course, you have Kenny, who's right there under our noses. He's standing out there on the platform at the train station, dressed in drag as the magician's assistant. As someone who views movies as a form of magic, in fact, one of the most powerful forms of magic we have. I love that they really embraced both that concept of, of movie magic and actual magic and melded them together into one big magical experience. <laughs> it's magical. Have I mentioned that yet? It's fucking magic. Another thing that really stands out to me about Terror Train is Elena. Jamie Lee Curtis had played a handful of final girls around this time, starting with Halloween in 1978. She played Kim in Prom Night uh, the same year that she made this movie. She was also in The Fog in 1980 as well. It was a busy year for Jamie Lee Curtis. And while I really like Kim from Prom Night, and I obviously love Laurie Strode, in my personal opinion, Elena Maxwell is the most well-written of those final girls. And I also think that it was Jamie's best performance at this time. Is that why you told me it was your idea? Because I said I'd never go to another one of his fucking parties. Curtis once said in an interview, there are certain things a heroine in a thriller has to be. She has to be vulnerable, so the audience identifies with her and is rooting for her. But she also has to have an enormous inner strength to overcome the evil or terror that is pursuing her. I play the same kind of character as I did in other films, but Elena, the girl I play in Terror Train, is stronger and more defined. And I completely agree with that. I think, I think she nailed it. As much as I love Laurie, 
And as much as I like Kim, Elena feels stronger and more three-dimensional. I mean, the first thing we're shown is her compassion. Her boyfriend's best friend, Doc, is the one who sort of orchestrated the uh, the cadaver incident. When she realizes that Doc took the prank way too far, she feels immediate remorse. And when we cut to a few years later, although she is still a part of this friend group, she wants nothing to do with Doc. She's never been able to forgive him. And more importantly, she's still feeling a lot of guilt for her own involvement in it. She takes responsibility for what happened to Kenny as well. She's also a loyal friend, a caring girlfriend. I love the conversation that she and Mo have on the train, the argument that they get into. And we find out that the reason that she's upset with Mo is that she feels he's undervaluing himself by remaining friends with someone like Doc. You know, Doc is a very self-centered, very shallow, typical caricature of a pre-med student. You could easily see Doc grow up to be a pompous neurosurgeon. You know, his OR, his rules, (laughs) having an affair with like half the nurses at the hospital. And Doc has this careless disregard for the feelings of others. As Elena says, You can't have a good time without hurting somebody, can you? And then when she's confronted with Kenny, she locks herself in a cage, which is one of my favorite scenes in the film. She spends a good portion of that showdown fleeing for her life, much the same way Laurie Strode did. But when she is cornered and she realizes that there's nowhere to run, she then decides to play along with Kenny's fantasy in an effort to fend him off psychologically, which ultimately works. And although Carney does burst in at the end in true Loomis fashion, Elena was the one who disarmed him, and she did it without having to use a weapon against him. She used her emotional and intellectual resources and outsmarted him in the end. So yeah, big fan of Elena Maxwell. Definitely one of my all-time favorite final girls. You and me and Mitchie and the guys. Doc, we heard him. What are you talking about? Kenny Hampson. You're stunned with the corpse? Nobody do that for a goddamn prank. It wasn't just a prank. I also really enjoy Kenny as a killer. I thought Derek McKinnon did a wonderful job in this role, especially when you consider that he had never acted in a film before. He was, at this point, performing all over Canada with a cabaret. He was he was doing drag professionally, and he hadn't even intended to audition for Terror Train. He was bringing food to a friend who was auditioning for Terror Train, and they took one look at him and said, hey, you should audition for this. So he did. He got four callbacks, and they eventually told him, you know, you got the part. He thought that it was just like a bit part in the movie, so he went, okay, and then got up to leave. (laughs) He said that they asked him, do you understand what just happened? And uh, he goes, yeah, I got a bit part in a movie. And they were like, no, you just signed up for the lead in a 20th Century Fox horror film. There was some friction on set between Spottiswood and McKinnon because he was so inexperienced, but I'm so glad that they were able to power through that because he's such a memorable killer. The look on his face when he and Elena are sitting there at the table at the end and he's yanking her toward him for a kiss because that's what he wants. He wants the kiss he never received in college. It's terrifying. The look on his face is is fucking terrifying. In addition to Elena and Kenny, you also have Carney, as I mentioned, played by Ben Johnson, who is just adorable. Maggie, I wish to hell they'd put a radio on that train. What if one of those kids got drunk and fell off? I've been talking on that for two years. I've heard some say that Carney is a bit of an unnecessary character. You could easily lift him out and just sort of shake things up at the end a little bit, give Elena a little bit more to do, and 
really not a whole lot would change. But I love that they they gave Carney such an endearing and unique personality. If you look at Terra Train as a retelling of Halloween, the train is Haddonfield. Everybody on that train, including the crew, contribute to that false sense of security. I think the presence of the crew just adds to the weight of that sense of security as it crumbles. The rest of the cast is great as well. Hart Bachner plays Doc, who is such a loathable character. I mean, he is he is so easy to hate. And yet Bachner managed to bring this humanity to his performance. Once Mitchie and Mo have been killed, Doc loses it. And he goes into this kind of fight or flight mode. He's trying to protect Elena to the best of his limited self-centered ability. And, and he's just in shambles. Mitchie. I don't know, man. I thought Bogner did a wonderful job of conveying that, yes, Doc may be a garbage person, but he he does have a human layer under there. You had Sandy Curry as Mitchie, Timothy Weber as Moe, Dee Dee Winters, also known as Vanity, who was like one of the most famous sex symbols of the 1980s. She has a small role as a girl named Mary. I think if I had to choose a favorite side character, it would be the president, played by Greg Swanson. If you want to talk, we can go back to my compartment. It's quiet there. Probably very private, too, with red lights and satin sheets, mood music. <laughs> yeah, I had the pledges install a hot tub. It's very nice. Mm. Seriously, if you want to talk, I'm around, okay? I love Prez. He is such a fascinating character to me because he and Ed, the jokester played by Howard Buskang, and Kenny, they were all freshmen at the start of the film. They were all wearing the little freshman beanies. And Prez at that time seems very similar to Kenny in that he's very shy. He's speaking to the upperclassmen using very subordinate language. But when you cut to three years later for Prez, he is suave as hell. He has like this deep baritone, a type of voice you would just not expect to come out of Greg Swanson, full of confidence, offering up wisdom to Elena when she's in distress. And it's so neat to see such a small but but rich character arc, like, shoved into the background of this movie. And of course, David Copperfield as the magician. Have you ever seen a quarter that um, allows a cigarette to go through it? Oh. Well, there's no such a thing. (laughs) (laughs) The living legend himself, which, fun fact, He is actually considered a living legend officially by the U.S. Library of Congress. I wasn't aware of this. This is brand new information to me. A Library of Congress living legend was someone recognized by, appropriately, the Library of Congress for creative contributions to American life. The Living Legend program was retired in 2018 for some reason. Among the list of honorees are B.B. King, Julia Child, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, Muhammad Ali, and David Copperfield. I have no idea what it means or if there are any benefits to being regarded as a living legend in a retired program from U.S. Congress, but I'm sure they gave him like a plaque or something. I'm not going to geek out too hard about David Copperfield's performance in this because I'm pretty sure Donovan and I are going to cover that in our discussion. But I will say that one of the things that makes his performance so special is that all of the stage magic you see him performing in the film, he was performing live as he would have on stage. So the reactions that we see from the characters are the genuine reactions of the 
actors. It really feels like they were having a good time making the movie, despite what I can imagine were some pretty unpleasant working conditions. I mean, they weren't using a set made to look like a train. They were all crammed into actual train cars along with the camera equipment and the crew. I mean, it's very tight quarters, and yet they still seem to be having a lot of fun. In addition to a fun cast, you also have a very talented crew, including John Alcott, who earlier in 1980 was the cinematographer for The Shining. And it shows I really enjoy the camera work in Terror Train, as well as Anne Henderson's editing and the funky score by John Mills Cockell. I would love to hear what Paul Zaza might have done with this score, but that's not... It's not anyone's fault. Not, not, he can't score every movie, Molly. I know. The kills are pretty tame for a movie directly inspired by Halloween. They definitely favored the reveal over the kill itself, so we don't see a lot of the kills happening. But they did kind of go nuts with the severed limbs throughout the film, which I think makes up for the lack of on-screen brutality a little bit. You know, you've got a severed finger rolling around in a tin box full of joints. One of the other kids who has killed Jackson, Kenny uses his severed hand to feel Mitchie up before he kills her. And the death reveals are a lot of fun, especially David Copperfield's. Uh, his death reveal, I think, is my favorite, followed closely by Doc's, which brings me to a brand new segment here at Final Girl Friday. Please join me in welcoming to the show, The Decap Recap. One character is decapitated in Terror Train, and that character is Doc. We don't see the decapitation happen. We see Kenny, who has kind of dressed his hand up to look like Mitchie's, grab Doc by the hair and raise his head to slit his throat, and then we immediately cut away. But later, when Carney is searching the train car that Doc had been hiding in, he opens one of the overhead compartments and out tumbles Doc's headless body. Carney's looking around, terrified, and he hears a kind of rattling sound in a different compartment. Doc's head comes flying out and lands beside his body. I have to say, as much as I enjoy how the makeup department handled the blood and severed limbs throughout the film, not a huge fan of the way Doc's fake head looks. It's just a little too puffy, a little too waxy. The eyes are bulging in a very weird way. It's just, it doesn't really look like Hart Bachner. <laughs> and, and they only show it for like a second before they cut away again. You know, like I said, the kills in this movie are very tame. It's absurd enough that it's very entertaining. I've got to give it that. If I had to rate it between one and five, I would give it a two. Two skulls for Doc's decapitated head. Despite the kills being a little on the softer side and the film's depressing lack of Paul Zaza, honestly, I have no other complaints. It's raucous, it's exciting, it plays on your expectations at a time when audience expectations for this specific type of film were still kind of being determined, you know, which I think is really impressive. It features all the comforts of the Halloween formula, as well as, you know, the Halloween lead, while at the same time taking the framework of Halloween and, and running with it, doing its own thing. When I sat down to research Terror Train earlier this month, I was mostly interested in finding out what critics had to say about it. This movie has been such a big part of my life, but I somehow managed to go all this time without ever having read a single review of it. And I was shocked to learn that a lot of people don't care for it. <laughs> when I saw it, I, I fell in love with it immediately. I believed, without even realizing it, that everyone else in the horror family felt the same way about Terror Train 
that I do. And I'm, I'm beginning to understand that I, that, that isn't the case. It has depressingly low ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb. It's been torn to shreds by critics for reasons I still barely understand, even after reading dozens of reviews. Even James A. Janice had mostly bad things to say about it in the kill count he did for it. I'm ever mindful that film is subjective and we don't always have to agree, but I would like to pose just, just one question to those of you out there who don't like Terror Train. How? How do you not? I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I can't wrap my head around the idea of anyone who is a fan of slasher films, particularly 80 slasher films, watching Terror Train and feeling anything but pure joy. Well, that was actually nice of you. Now, what are we going to drink? What are we going to drink? <laughs> what are we going to drink? What are we going to It's true that this film is a deliberate ripoff of Halloween. That That is true. But, you know, Halloween borrows heavily from Black Christmas. Black Christmas borrows heavily from Giallo films of the mid-60s. Giallo films borrowed heavily from films like 13 Women from 1932. Like, every film has borrowed heavily from another film. Call me naive, but it just blows my mind that there are horror fans out there that don't worship Terror Train. <laughs> And I'm not trying to cut you down if you're not a fan of this film, but I would implore you to try it again because it's awesome. On that note, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'll be talking with my friend Donovan, aka Donnie Darkness, about what makes Terror Train so special to him. Stop! Please! Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to kill me? Okay. Hold on. I am so glad that you asked. I'm trying to kill you because I love your podcast, but it takes you weeks, sometimes months, to upload new content. Wait, really? You like the show? Yeah. But if you kill me, I won't be able to post anything at all. Don't do that. Just pledge to my Patreon. You have a Patreon? Yeah, I do. Well, I kind of sank all my money into this whole murder plan, so... Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Masks aren't cheap. The, the lowest tier is only a dollar. Well, that's a pretty sweet deal. Right? And, uh, and the more patrons I have, the more freedom I'll have to focus on creating new episodes of Final Girl Friday. Which means more regular uploads. Yes! See, you don't need to kill me. Just go to patreon.com slash finalgirlfriday. Okay, but we came all the way out here, and I have put a lot of work into this, so I'm still going to kill you. Uh, are you freaking kidding me? I'll be sure to check out the Patreon once you're dead. Oh, that makes no sense. For my first guest of the year, welcome Donovan. Hello, welcome to Final Girl Friday. Hey, Molly, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, how are you? Excellent, excellent, doing great. Awesome. Fantastic. So Donovan, uh, if you guys are not familiar with him, he's known as Donnie <laughs> Darkness on Slasher. <laughs> um, and I am so happy. This is actually the first time you and I have ever talked about a film together, and I'm so glad that it's that we're talking about Terror Train. What a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you have, uh, what do you call them, uh, profile images, but I think yours 
falls into the realm of show file image. Uh, and, yeah, and you're and you're rocking a terror train shirt, so I knew I had to be on my shit today because if not, I would get laughed right up off of here. Um. I love the film so much, and and uh, as as I mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, it's I was very surprised by some of the negative reception that the film has got and, and negative criticism over the over the decades. I was really surprised. I thought everybody that has seen this movie loves it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was shocked to discover that that's not entirely true. So mm-hmm. when you wanted to talk about Terror Train specifically, I was like, oh, yes, let's talk about why this movie is amazing. So- <laughs> yeah, why, why is it the shit? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So when, when did you see Terror Train for the first time? All right. So my vestal viewing of Terror Train mm-hmm. was... I would say somewhere around 83. Uh, It was on cable. We had just moved to the Burbs uh, in 1980, so uh, cable was a huge thing. Um, Didn't have a VCR yet, like 84, 85, you know, the VCR came into play. But 83, somewhere around there, and it was so much stuff on cable. And just this wide-eyed kid sitting on the floor of the floor model TV. So if that that dates myself, then so (laughs) be it. Um... (laughs) But yeah, somewhere around 83, um, I remember knowing that certain movies were naughty. Like I shouldn't <laughs> be watching them. Yeah. Um, so I would put like a towel under the door so that the light from the TV would not be seen. Ah. Yeah, and I'd turn it down as far as I could, but I would have to get like video drone Carol Ann close so that I could hear it. Because... <laughs> You know, you don't have headphones back there, you know, so you had to l- really be close. Um, so, yeah, and just, you know, how, how strong the imagery was, the confinement of being on the train. Um, I have, you know, a lot of family uh, in, in various states, and we used to take the train a lot. So that whole thing about being on the rail and being in those little tiny quarters, having to duck into one door so that someone else could get by as you're going by and uh, the rocking of the train sleeper cars and and did you secure the luggage is it going to fall off and and hit you or someone else you know the, the person who comes by who checks the tickets so it was very familiar to me immediately yeah you know I said okay well I this is a train I, I know trains all right oh wait people are being killed oh good let me turn this down a little bit more so i can <laughs> really get into this yeah so around 83 i was probably um so i would have been nine going on 10 and um i had already seen jamie lee in uh the fog that was probably one of my earliest theatrical experiences yeah uh what's funny is it was a <laughs> it was a family outing <laughs> <laughs> Yes, my my parents, my brother, my sister and I, we went to see The Fog. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as far as horror films go, man. I do feel like it that The Fog is one of the sort of tamer ones in terms of, you know, there's there's not much of an exploitative nature to it. it it's mm-hmm. a little bit, you've got ghost pirates, that's fun for kids. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah, I could see that being a good family. If you're going to take the kids to see a horror movie at that time, The Fog is a good choice. Yeah, it's not overly bloody, you know, um, yeah. the, the extracurricular activities that uh, <laughs> Atkins and, and Curtis indulge in. They're, they're tastefully it's tasteful, done. yeah. It's tasteful. Exactly. You, you know what happens. You don't have to see it, you know. It's very tasteful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids, and my sister, she's, uh, she's 10 years older than me, and she's really responsible for my love 
of movies for sure. And because of that age gap, you figure, so when I saw Terror Train, I'm nine, she's 19, she's already out of the house. So the connection to, you know, my siblings were, was pretty much cut off because they were already out of the house or on their way to being out of the house. So I had to imagine what their lives were like. So here we are on this train. Here are these college kids. And I'm like, okay, well, this is probably what my sister's doing. She's at a a, uh, costume party, and she's getting mad at this guy. And and this guy wants to date her, but this guy can't really come to the terms of saying it. And I said, okay, she has to be going through this. And I would just imagine, you know, that that was what they were doing because I didn't really have a, a... a true avenue into what they were actually doing. So I had to, you know, imagine it. It feels real. It, it doesn't does. Feel, yeah, it does not yeah. feel, you know, because it's, uh, it's, it's Canada. Um, surprise. Spoilers to anyone who did not know that this was a <laughs> Canadian production. Oh, I don't know. Um, if I'm covering it and it's a slasher <laughs> film, there's like an 85% chance it's Canadian. So. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like the cold is real. You know, these, these are real looking college students yeah. um, you know the the end of a uh, of a of a year the new year is coming you're spending that with the friends that you're probably going to have the rest of your life it just was really really resonant with me you know not yeah. as a kid because i didn't understand i was just like you know right when is the naked girl gonna come because there always <laughs> is a naked girl somewhere i think in this one the only well no i guess we see two there are two naked women there's uh, fancy pants whatever her costume is i think we do get to see her but then at the beginning you get the naked cadaver you know which is you always do, a good time you do. And, and and that's interesting because you want to turn away right from, from something like that you're repulsed right. yeah you're repulsed so they flipped you it know. on its head. You know, the first breasts you see in, in Terror Train are the breasts of a dead woman. So it is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Swore off a breast my whole life after that. <laughs> I completely agree about the friend group, too, in Terror yeah. Train. They, they really do. Not just... They were very well cast. Like, I feel like the movie is well cast across the board. But not only that, you do get the sense that these people have been friends for a long time. And even Doc, I love him and hate him at the same time. But you really can understand and you feel that friendship between him and Mo and you feel the history and the weight uh, between him and Elena you know they they don't get along at all but they've been forced to go to school together for like four years and you really feel that in the few interactions that we have with them they 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 feel like real people who have really known each other for a long time and I love that yeah it's that's just great um, you know of course you get you get swept in uh, or swept up in it and you just go for that ride, literally on the rails. <laughs> like you literally yeah. go on a ride. Oh yeah, I love that. You know, going back to the moving train thing, I I think that it was a brilliant idea to take the slasher formula and put it onto a moving train. You got the isolation factor, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you also have the claustrophobic factor, mm-hmm. and the the set design itself, this using the actual train cars, just makes it feel extra believable. You're right there with them the whole time, and it, it's such a fun and weirdly exotic location. Oh yeah. So you know that they did not have the budget to cut one side off of that train yeah. <laughs> to do certain shots. No, they right. are in there with like a nine millimeter lens like pressed up against the side like this is this is real this is real for the the crew as well it's not just uh these characters who are put in this position like Mm -hmm. you know imagine how it was done to shoot inside that bathroom granted okay the door's open and you're going to photograph through it 
but I don't know. It's really tight. Yeah. So the movie magic of it all is writ large. You yeah. Know? Um, minus the real magic that's taking place. You know, oh, which uh, I in love. Front of, in front, oh, that's just so charming. Cause so you like the, that. You like the magic aspect. Oh, my God. I love it. Because, <laughs> you know, because I'm, you know, I'm old. So be it. Now, David Copperfield <laughs> was the shit back he then. He was. He was such a big deal. <laughs> he was the shit. He had that mushroom haircut, you know. He's, you know, he's uh, you know, clean shaven, dark eyes, dark hair. <laughs> And you're like, okay, well, magicians are usually weird in general. <laughs> um, you know, David Blaine is a very strange man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're so enigmatic and so magnetic at the same time that you can't take your eyes off them. And these kids are fucking blown away by this magic because they're like, wait a minute. Okay, the guy's going to yell cut at some point. <laughs> but this magic, no, 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 this shit is real. Yeah. Oh, so the applause is real. The way that uh, that that Elena looks at at the magician when you know they do the the cigarette trick, they're like, "No, that magic is really fucking happening right in front of you." Oh yeah, or the, 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 the floating, floating rose. Yeah, the floating rose. That shit is right there on the screen. Yeah, you know? her reaction <laughs> real is so space. genuine, and I love it. I yeah. love the look on her face when he's doing that trick. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That was the whole reason that I watched. As much as I love Jamie Lee Curtis, I didn't see her first when I turned on the TV the first time. Or I flipped to the channel right in the middle of a David Copperfield scene. And I was like, oh my God, David Copperfield. I had this huge crush on him. And when I realized what I was watching, that I was watching a slasher movie where David Copperfield may have been the killer, I was just like, oh God, my, my little mind was just blown. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, he can't be. It, he's, he, you know, it's introducing David Copperfield. It's like, you don't want his first movie to you know him to be the the, the killer yeah <laughs> and not only that but they also brought in ben johnson who was a legend ah, you know of the western yes. world and, and yes 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 which is also interesting because mitchie's wearing a cowboy hat at the beginning of the film there, there's like a weird western horror <laughs> crossover with this film i absolutely love you molly oh i told you i'm a, i like play on words so i wrote down um what is the peck and paw print <laughs> and I was like, I was like, fuck yeah, she's gonna dig this. This is a western. Oh yeah. In the snow, it's on a train. You know, trains were called the Iron Horse back in the day. Yeah. Uh, there's bits of the soundtrack that sounds like a harmonica. So true. Um, yeah. So you know, she has this this cowboy hat. Uh, you know, Ben Johnson is there. That you know, that that's not a something you should you know overlook. You know, <laughs> right. I, I I saw him as like the. Uh, the retired train robber in, yeah. in a western who's who's forced to take a job as a conductor to spot train robbers and possibly prevent future robberies. Ooh, like, I love like, that. Yeah, like that's I said. Oh fuck you! Yeah, that's that's exactly what this movie's about. It's a western. <laughs> that is that is a great backstory. I've never considered that yeah. before, and that is my official hug cannon now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Spottiswood is there, so he probably knows him. You know, he shows up on set uh, with Peck at some point. You know, they worked together three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Peck and Paw and, uh, and Spottiswood. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure, you know, when they rap, you know, or, you know, they're done for the night, you know, he probably calls up Peck and says, hey, you know, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, man, I'm making this fucking cold movie up in Canada, freezing my ass off, but. But uh, Ben's great. He's doing great. Yeah, yeah. yeah Ben is great. It's, you know, <laughs> you know, like well, just hang in there. You know, a lot of people get their start with horror these days, and you know, he, he gets the peck and paw blessing. Yeah. as well. You yeah. know, which is which is rare. Who can say that? Mm-hmm. You know, and there and there's you know, 
there's a lot of Hollywood royalty, uh, renegade royalty behind the scenes. You know, mm-hmm. you got John Alcott, the lens that that he literally had to have invented yeah. to shoot the low light scenes in Barry Lyndon. He brought that lens with him, so you're right. like, oh fuck, man. So this is a western. This is renegade Hollywood history, uh, history being made. There's Jamie Lee. There's fucking David Copperfield yeah. doing real magic. It's yeah. really cold. <laughs> They're on a real train. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, anybody who wants to detract this movie, they can kiss it, man. Come come to my house and I'll screen it for yeah. you. Yeah. You'll, you'll change your attitude. That's what blows my mind about the harsh criticisms that the film has received. Because, I mean, if anybody, if, I mean, I just feel like so much of, of the innovation of the film gets overlooked in favor of, you know, just labeling it a ripoff of Halloween and moving on. It's like, no, there was there were so many gifted hands involved in this film. Oh, yeah. And then you had Derek McKinnon. The whole time through the film, you know the killer is Kenny. There's very little mystery there. You know it's Kenny. But then you had these smoke and mirrors, mm-hmm. you know, with Kenny being dressed as the assistant through the whole the whole thing. The killer constantly changing costumes. But it was very interesting. It makes for fascinating replay now looking back. I loved his performance most especially as Kenny but it was just so cool that he's right there in the background the whole time the whole time <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, I would not be surprised if the original script did not have the Kenny character mm-hmm. I, I highly doubt it yeah. I think that it was they, they liked McKinnon's look they probably saw his show probably had a drink with him uh, you know, it's late 70s, probably had a little toot. <laughs> you know, it's Montreal, it's snow, there's snow everywhere. So, of course, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he were not asked to come in, improv, bring what you can to this role because mm-hmm. you're unique. It's going to make this movie unique. 42 years later, there's going to be two really punch truck fans that's going to be gushing over you just do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah he was he was great oh and he was so sinister too there at the end because you you could feel oh, i feel oh. really sympathetic for him in the beginning i mean he really played that up well where you just feel for him at the start but by the end god that scene with the two of them at the table i mm-hmm. i am terrified of him in that moment he plays that silent sinister character mm-hmm. bent on revenge so well yeah he's so he's so layered you know in in realism you yeah. know yeah mike michael myers he, you know fantastic <laughs> but you know the whole he might be uh, involved with witchcraft and all this other kind of stuff um you know that stuff is real and it's there but this this movie was like no mm-hmm. this is like the amount of time that kenny puts into this plot yeah is fascinating. Mm-hmm. He is somewhere wrapped up in the you know, straight jacket. Like I have to get even with these fuckers. Yeah. And damn if he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say sometimes that you really empathize with a villain mm-hmm. in such a way. No, uh, it, it was just fascinating. Yeah. Um, didn't see that as a kid, but definitely as an adult. Right. And I would love to indulge you with where I'm really coming from on this whole uh, Kenny thing. Yeah, please do. So, okay, so we see Kenny in the beginning, right? He's uh, very shy, very timid, looks down at his feet a lot. Um, Kenny is not the kind of kid who pledges uh, (laughs) fraternities. He's not. (laughs) 
He's not. Yeah. He is he is a little underdeveloped emotionally. He's a late bloomer. You figure what? Is he nineteen, give or take? Mm-hmm. He's a freshman. So eighteen, nineteen. Um, he's still a virgin at that point. Um, I can't say that a lot of people were going into college usually. Uh, um, but in his case, that late bloomer in him connected with me as an adult because I too am a late bloomer. So Kenny is in the room. Kiss me, Kenny. He's like, fuck yeah, I will. <laughs> but guess what? <laughs> you damn right. This is it. I am gonna I am gonna make it with Alana and, and I am gonna go down in history as the as the dude. Yeah. However, it doesn't go that way. He freaks out, mm-hmm. stands up, spins around in this these silken type curtains or shears or something. In that moment, Kenny cocooned himself. Yeah. He was not ready to be the full Kenny that we see at the end of the movie. Right. So we, the, the off-screen Kenny, the one that's locked away for a few years, that is the, the pupil Kenny, the gestating Kenny, <laughs> the I'm going to get all of these fuckers Kenny. And then by the time we get to the, the, the train, I'm ready. I'm going to, yep, I'm, it's, this whole movie is about change. It's about illusion. Um, you know, he's away for, what, three years? Uh, so with each costume change, counts for, like, another year that he's away until we get to the Ooh. point where he has that clear mask where there is no more hiding, you know? Oh, my God. Um, That's brilliant. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, there's the big reveal. And he's like, no, you're going to sit here and look at me. He takes this thing off. And, she, and she's like, oh, my God, Kenny, you know, I'm so sorry. And he says in this tone, I mean, it shakes me now. He says, you haven't changed. And I said, yep, there it is. Boom. All right, Molly, what you got? <laughs> I said, this whole, this whole larval Kenny, full-blown wow. Kenny. And that's taking, that's taking the whole uh, drag stuff out of it. Like, what yeah. spoke to me as a late bloomer? Like, yeah, I that know what so- that's like interesting i've never all the times i've seen this movie yeah i've never Mm -hmm. ever thought about it like that but also if you look at the costumes themselves because he starts as groucho Marx, which is the joker Mm -hmm. the butt of the you know the butt of the joke the punchline and then Mm -hmm. the costumes get progressively scarier more human more sinister yep i mean yeah because after that you've got like the the lizard type character which is a little bit scarier than Groucho Marx you know and a little bit more serious and then you have the monk which I I really love that monk costume but it's also you know scarier than the lizard he goes from being the butt of the joke to being you know kind of the coolest you know one of the (laughs) like the coolest character in the movie you know because like you said that veil has been yeah that is really fucking interesting I have never thought about it like that (laughs) yeah he went in that cocoon I'm going to hang out here for a little bit until, you know, at some point I'm going to break out. And when I do, unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit mad, angry. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, my my conditions and my situation kind of made me this way. You know, it's unfortunate for me. But I didn't do anything wrong to anyone. I, you know, I wanted to be somebody. And all these kids are going to be somebody. They're all pre-med. They're they're destined for, for, you know, uh, air quotes, greatness, you know, and... But here's this prank, you know, which is like this sub sub genre. You know, it's all fun and games till someone gets hurt. Movies, um, yeah. But here's someone who is hurt on the inside. You know how prom night, the sister she gets, uh, you know, scared up to the ledge and falls over, 
you know, breaks his back and dies. But yeah. no, something inside Kenny was deeply affected. I said, no, it's not that good for him to be like, oh, he's the mummy. Like, no, there's more to it than that. He is this yeah. late bloomer. And I truly connected with that aspect of him, for sure. Right. No, that's really, really interesting. I just never, I never thought about that. It's just so kinetic. It really is. It has a lot going for it. Mm-hmm. They really had their fingers on the pulse of a, of a lot of stuff of the era. I guess my last question would be, you know, you saw this as a kid. And you had, like you said, you you talked about the, um, you know, the connections that you made back then versus what you're making now. So, like, when, how would you say Terror Train holds up, you know, from the late 80s when you first, or the mid to late 80s when you first saw it? Like, how, how do you see, how do you think it holds up today? Well, it truly is wine for me and not vinegar. Ooh, I love that. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it aged, it aged very well. What? Okay, don't stop, keep writing. But yeah, it truly mm-hmm is wine for me it it, it is it, it is wine for sure yeah it's aged so well to have such a uh, important meaning for me later on mm-hmm. you know as, as I age you start to think about where you come from and are you where you want to be you know and if I had done this I probably would have gone this way or maybe if I weren't such a late bloomer I would probably be uh, in, a, in, a, in a different place you know um, growing up romantically and you know and, and probably be a more formed man for you know as a husband to my wife you know, I mean I really thought about this stuff and who would want to think this about a little two million dollar horror movie yeah. I did <laughs> listeners if you if you haven't changed your mind about this movie by now then mm-hmm. rewind it yeah rewind it and that band how cool is that fucking band? Oh my god, yes, I love it. Crime. <laughs> Crime. <Yeah. laughs> Funky love, yeah. Man. Yeah, I love it. It's like it was it was like yeah, it was like kind of disco-y, but it was also so funky and yeah, that was great. It was. It was. And because you're so tight in that space, she's like right up on the guy yeah. singing. Yeah. Like she you know, they could do a duet. Yep. God, see, I would have loved to have gone to that party, though. Like, I would love oh, to have that party would have been rad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, apart that from all the death. Yeah, it would have been great. Yeah. Well, um, we would have lived because we didn't participate that's true. in the... <laughs> we, we didn't haze Kenny, so we would have been fine. <laughs> I just want to thank Donovan for coming onto the show, hanging out, and providing some additional insights into the wonderful world of Terror Train, and for bringing to my attention another bit of subtext that I hadn't even considered before. Thank you, Donovan. I had such a blast chatting with you, and I hope you come back sometime soon. To everyone else out there, I pose the question, how do you feel about Terror Train? Are you a fan? Who's your favorite character? What's your favorite kill? If you'd like to share some of your thoughts on Terror Train, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we wrap up tonight, it's time for the first worst case scenario of 2023. Give me a worst case scenario and make it grim.
I thought we could start the year with something simple, going back to basics in a way that sort of relates to Terra Train. This week's worst case scenario is you're a masked killer stalking a college campus. What mask are you wearing? Halloween Guy 6 says, I'm wearing a burger mask, pickle eyes, ketchup smile, purple onion eyebrows, and pickle teeth. <laughs> that is fucking terrifying. <laughs> Chrome Skull says the mask of the face of the security guard person who is supposed to protect the students. I think that's brilliant. If you do it well, man, I mean, you could you could go on quite the killing spree before anybody caught on. Calipolis? Calipolis? 666 says, I'm wearing the mask of a well-adjusted person. <laughs> They'll never know. Chongo22 just posted a photo of the kennel thing from the thing, and uh, fuck that. Oh My Guts initially went with a very leather-facey answer, which I appreciated. Uh, they said, a mask of my victims all stitched together, keeping only the parts that I liked. Or a Hulk Hogan mask, and let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> oh, God, I really want to see a slasher movie with a Hulk Hogan killer. Not Hulk Hogan playing a killer, but a Hulk Hogan mask-wearing killer. Please, I need that in my life. Vlad Romeo said the face of the Dean that I had already killed, and then adds, somebody's gotta go down for my stalking crimes and it ain't gonna be me. <laughs> That's the whole point of putting on a mask, right? Yeah, can you just imagine that moment when that first student realizes you're not the real Dean? <laughs> it would be so unsettling. Donnie Darkness also said the Dean's face. Thank you for contributing to this week's worst case scenario, Donovan. Ricky Lee Yama said I'd cut my face off and wear that. <laughs> which is a very interesting answer. I feel like it would be painful, but worth it. Sassy Devil replied, I like the uniqueness of this idea. Yeah, completely agree. It's very, it's a very unique answer. Sassy Devil also said, the cafeteria lady. <laughs> I love the idea of just uh, actually like a trio of killers running around wearing the faces of a security guard, the dean of the school, and the cafeteria lady. Like three from hell, the college years. Mayor of Nilbog says, I'm wearing a furry moose outfit so I can take pictures of me humping the dead bodies afterward. We all have our kinks, you know, we, we, we all have them. Super Death said, definitely Dolly Parton, which is one of my favorite answers. But I have a request. If you're gonna wear a Dolly Parton mask when you kill people, every kill should be accompanied by this song. If there were just the two of us, how different things would be. No one could come between us from now on. John Zajdel? Zajdel? I probably just fucked up your name, said Ronald Reagan mask with a club inscribed with bedtime for democracy. Loving the Dead Kennedys reference, that's fantastic. With an all-DK soundtrack even, the, just the mind reels with ideas. Deuce said the college's mascot, unless it's close to a holiday, then it will be holiday-themed, because you have the utmost respect for holiday-themed horror films as well, and I love you for that. Kay Scanlon said, I'd probably pick some kind of skull mask with a black hoodie, which is a classic. I also dig the masks that Ethan Hawke wears in the black phone. That would also be a possibility. You know, I just saw the black phone just a couple of months ago, and I loved it. I was really impressed with the black phone. I'm gonna have to do, like, a Frighten early on it or something. I really like Rev. 468's approach, he says, I'd go with the typical Jason Voorhees mask, primarily because no one would take it seriously. I think that would work really well. Because you're right, if I were walking through a college campus and someone was coming at me in a Jason Voorhees mask, I would 100% assume they were a friend of mine trying to scare me. And I would very quickly you know, die. Jeff the Nerd says, the mask mask, the wooden one he finds before he transforms. Top Shelf Horror says, I think I'd go with something like the old Cobra Commander mask, a blank mirrored faceplate. I think I would do a black hooded jacket, black pants, gloves, and boots to complete the look. I love it. I love that you have the whole wardrobe plan. And I think that would make a, a truly badass killer mask, the, the mirrored faceplate. Although I would also hope you would deliver at least a couple of one-liners in the Cobra Commander voice. 
Now stop sputtering like a wet toaster and get busy! Stargirl MS says full-on T-Rex inflatable. <laughs> and then the community favorite was Skid Blodnir, which I'm pretty sure I mispronounce your name every single time I say it, for which I apologize. Skid said, I'd stock the campus in paper mache masks that are unpainted. This allows people to see that the masks are made from their printed student loan applications. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that wins. That's the scariest mask of all time. Thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight, guys. However you rang in the new year, I hope you had a blast. And I hope that 2023 is a, a good, productive, healthy year for all of us. Final Girl Friday is hosted by, you know, me, Molly Oblivion, edited by Jonathan Bradley, scored by Gory Rory. And I'd like to offer a special thanks tonight to my friend Bruce Barnett for portraying the killer in my new Patreon ad. So thank you for that, Bruce. I thoroughly enjoyed being chased through the woods by you. I'll be back in two weeks on the 20th, talking with my dear friend Deuce about one of his personal favorites, Toby Hooper's The Fun House. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, prank your friends responsibly, and until next time, creep it real. <laughs>